Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I'm going to start reading verse 1. It says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. And then verse 10. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Father, again, speak to us through your word. Convict us through your Holy Spirit. Let us see today what it is that you would say to us. Let us perceive it and take it into our hearts. I pray you'll clear my mind and give me the strength that's needed. In Christ's name, amen. I read a story some time ago of a little boy who lived uh, back in the early 1900s. He lived quite a ways outside of town. Well, this little boy had a dream. His dream was to one day see the circus. How many of you have ever, ever had that dream when you was a kid? You had that dream until you saw the circus. First time I saw the circus, I didn't want to go back. Them clowns are scary. I didn't want nothing to do with them. But this little boy had a dream. He wanted to see the circus. And all his life, all of ten years, that was had been his dream. Well, one day at school, the teacher showed a poster to all the kids. And sure enough, the circus was coming to town. That Saturday, they would be there. Well, this little boy was fired up. He went back and... Uh, when he left school, went back home, and I mean, he was so excited, he told his mom and dad, the, the circus is coming Saturday morning. Dad, can I go to the circus? Now, his folks were just poor farmers, but his dad said, is this my fault? What am I doing? All right, let's quit. And like I said, his folks were poor and, and they didn't have a lot of money, but his dad told him, he said, son, if you'll get all your chores done early Saturday morning, I'll make sure you got enough money to go to the circus. Well, that little boy, he just could not wait till Saturday morning. Well, Saturday morning come around, he was up before sunup, had all those chores done. He was standing at the breakfast table when his daddy come in. And his dad kind of grinned at him and sat down. He said, all your chores, chores done, boy? Yes, sir, they're done. Dad said, all right, son. He reached in the pocket of his faded overalls and he pulled out the 50-cent piece. And he handed it to that little boy. He said, now, you have fun and be careful. Well, that little boy was gone in a flash. All the way to town, he was so excited, his feet hardly touched the ground. Well, when he got to town, there was a big crowd of people along Main Street. And he kind of pushed his way through. And sure enough, the circus parade was just getting started. So he got to see it from beginning to end, this, this grand parade. Well, this little boy never seen anything like this. There were, you know, animals snarling in cages. There were lions and tigers and dancing horses and, and bears riding tricycles and, you know, people uh, juggling and acrobats and, and the music and all the banners. 
and he was just in awe with mouth wide open and eyes wide. I, I, he'd never seen anything like this. Well, when the end of the parade got right to him, it was the end of the parade was brought up by a, a typical circus clown. You know, the one with the big shoes and the baggy pants and the painted face. And he got right up next to this little boy. He said, son, are you having a good time? And the little boy said, yes, sir. I never seen nothing like this before. He said, wow, this is, this is unbelievable. And that little boy reached in his pocket, pulled out that 50 cent piece, handed it to the clown, and then took off home like a flash. Now the tragedy of that story is, that little boy thought he'd seen the circus. All he'd seen was the parade. Now folks, I want you to listen to me. In Solomon here writing in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, I believe he describes countless people today and they're wandering through life and they're thinking this. They're thinking there's got to be more. They're, they're asking the question, is there a better way to live? Now, however, folks, the tragedy is without following God's will, God's word, and his wisdom and ways, then all these folks are ever going to experience is this life, a fleeting parade under the sun rather than the grand finale that God has waiting for them over the sun. Now you may be one of the millions of people today that, that are disgruntled and, and uh, dissatisfied with the current affairs of your life. And maybe you've even had these thoughts or you thought there's got to be a better way. Well, according to what we just read here, Solomon says there is a better way. Because if you keep in track, he uses the word better seven times in a positive way in these first ten verses. And what he does is teaches, he teaches us that there is, is a better way. And this better way, it's not by human design, all right? It's by heavenly design, and it's threefold. Notice, first off, he gives us a better way to examine personal problems or personal troubles, if you will. I want you to look at verse 1. I love verse 1. Look at it again. A good name is better than precious ornament the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now, this verse, what it does, folks, it enables us to put all the pieces of our last puzzle into the proper place. It is, this verse, when you study it, it enables us to get a proper perspective, to look within and examine and evaluate certain characteristics of our life. And the first thing that Solomon speaks of is uh, the fact concerning the legacy that we should leave. Now notice verse 1, there are two phrases in verse 1. And the first phrase actually explains the second phrase. Look at it again. Here's the first phrase. A good name is better than precious ointment. And then the second phrase. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. Now I want to look at these two statements individually and then combine them in just a moment. Hebrew scholars tell us something interesting about this verse. The Hebrew word for the word name is the word shem. Now the Hebrew word for the word ointment is the word shemen. So what Solomon does he uses a play on words to get his reader's attention. He says that a sham is better than a shaman. So what's he saying? Well, when Solomon refers to a person's name and he uses that word sham, he's talking about their reputation. He's speaking about their character. That word sham points out the close association between a person's name and a person's character. So what Solomon is saying is that a good name, a good reputation, good character is better than good fragrance or good aroma. In other words, you can smell good on the outside, but Solomon says it's the pleasing aroma of a good reputation, of a good character that's better. And let me put it this way, if I don't offend your delicate sensibilities. 
You might be able to live down a bad body odor, but it's difficult to live down a bad reputation. You hear me? A reputation and a good character, it's one of those qualities we, we really don't know the value of until it's gone. You know, I love reading history, and I, I may have shared this with you before, but after the Civil War, the grand great soldier of the South, uh, General Robert E. Lee, he was living in near poverty. I mean, he lost everything during the war. Well, these two guys come up to him. They said, General, we would like to use your name. If you'll just sign on this piece of paper, we're not going to ask you to do anything. You're not going to have to put in business hours, office hours. You're not going to have to any, answer any questions, make any decisions. We just want to use your good name. Well, the old general stood up from his chair leaning on his cane. He said, Gentlemen, I've lost my home in the war. I've lost my fortune along the way. I've lost everything along the way except my name. But I am not ready to sell my good name to anyone no matter how much it may be worth. Now, folks, the amazing thing about a good reputation, about a good character, is it takes a lifetime to develop it, but it can be lost in a matter of moments. In a second, Solomon says a good name, a good character, it's priceless, it, it's, it's precious. It's far better than the most alluring, the most expensive perfume or cologne that you could buy. You know what, folks? Somebody talking about the name, the value of a name. They said this, Christians have four names. They said saint for his holiness, believer for his faith, brother for his love, and disciple for his commitment. So let me ask you something. I wonder, you're here this morning, if you're a Christian, how are you living up to your name? How are you living up to those? Warren Wiersbe puts it like this. He said, every man has three names. One his father gives him, one others call him, and then one he acquires all by himself. Listen to me, folks. Solomon seems to remind us to give and pay special attention to our name, our character and reputation, because it's more precious than the finest colognes. And perfumes. You say, well, is that expensive? Have you tried, have you seen some of the cologne they got out nowadays? It don't smell that good. I mean, you want to impress me, get me a bottle of cologne that, or perfume that smells like a ribeye steak. You want to impress me. <laughs> now, let me, let me tie these two phrases together. How does that, that tie into the second phrase? Well, look at the verse again. A good name is better than precious ornament in the day of death than the day of one's birth. So how does a good name relate to one's death and birth? Well, think about this, folks. It's because there are two days in the life of every person where our names are prominent. You know what those days are? The day your name appears on a birth certificate and the day your name appears in the obituary column of the newspaper. So what Solomon is saying is that what happens between those two days determines whether our name has a, was a lovely fragrance or a foul stench. Now think about it, folks. We're not born with a good name, but we can die with a good name. I mean, those two phrases go together because good reputation, it doesn't matter on the day of your birth, but it does matter on the day of your death. Now think about it. At the day of your birth, anything is possible. But on the day of your death, what you've done with your life, it's set in stone. It's fixed. It cannot be changed. I remember the story of a wise old black preacher who was talking to a younger pastor <clears throat> one day after a, a graveside service and they were there at the cemetery and that, that wise old pastor said, Son, look at yonder at that headstone. The young preacher looked at it. He said, What do you reckon is the most important thing on that tombstone? The young preacher said, well, I don't know, the 
day of birth? That old preacher said, nah, people don't remember birthdays. He said, well, maybe the day of death. The old preacher said, nah, in a few years, ain't nobody going to remember the day of man's death. A young preacher said, well, then I, I don't guess I know what is the most important thing. That wise old black preacher grinned, and he said, the only thing really matters on that tombstone is the little dash between those two days. Now, don't you listen to me. That's precisely what Solomon is saying here in this verse. The dash between the day we were born and the day we die will tell whether or not we'll be remembered for the sweet fragrance of a good name or the stinking fragrance of a bad name. But understand this, either way you're going to leave behind some kind of legacy, be it good or bad. Now notice the second thing. Verses 2 through 4, he talks about the lessons that we need to learn. And I think that, that Solomon gives some priceless information in these verses about these lessons that, that we all learn in life. Look at verse 2. He said, it's better to go to the house of mourning than go, to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, when you first read this, this appears to be a contradiction to some of the earlier things that Solomon had written. For instance, in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 13, Solomon says, A merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow the heart the spirit is broken. Uh, Solomon says in Proverbs 17, 22, A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dryeth the bones. But notice what he says here. He says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. So what's he saying? Well, let me explain to you here. Look at, look at verse 3. Look at the word laughter that he uses. It's actually the Hebrew word for our English word, amusement. So the word amusement, folks, that's a compound word. Think about this. To muse, that means to think. But when you put the prefix a in front of it, it negates the quality of that word. So instead of muse to think, now it's amuse, which means to do that which stops you from thinking. So let me explain to you. Solomon is not saying that laughter is a bad thing. He's saying that the man or the woman who goes through life only looking for amusements and pleasure is a foolish person. In other words, the wise man has come to terms with the brevity of life. He doesn't live as though life on this earth is going to last forever. But he understands this life is precious. Death is certain and eternity is long. And the wise man makes preparations accordingly. But the foolish man, the foolish man doesn't take any thought to the brevity of this life. His mind's only concerned with the pleasure and the amusements of this life. And he acts like he's going to live this life forever, folks. So he doesn't make any preparations for what will be after this life. So Solomon is saying that the man who acquaints himself with the house of mourning, the man who understands sorrows, the man who understands death, the man who understands the reality of death and life, he says the man realizing the brevity of life and he makes those arrangements for the next life, Solomon says that man is a wise man. None of us enjoy the hard, hurtful times of life, do we? But Solomon, what he's saying is there are great lessons to be learned during these times, during these hard times. Now, I want you to get this straight, folks. Listen to me. God is the professor. We're the students. Trials, tribulations, and troubles, they are the textbooks in life. And understand, God is not trying to break us. God is wanting to make us. 
to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. So Solomon says that's a better way to ex examine personal troubles. Now notice the second thing he gives to us. Look at verses uh, 5 through 7. He says there's a better way to explain difficult or perplexing truths. All right? Now, folks, I think you'd agree with me. It doesn't take long in life to discover there are some things in life that just don't seem to have an explanation. There are some things in life that don't make any sense. Life often appears to be a paradox without any rhyme or reason. I'm going to tell you, I believe that's where a book like the book of Ecclesiastes come, becomes so valuable. Because Solomon, by guidance of God, in his own distinct way, speaks to the very heart of this matter. And what he does is give us a better way, and this time, folks, it's a better way to explain the difficult truths of life. And the first, he talks about the difficult truth, the one I'm going to use here this morning. The difficult truth of life that he discusses, look at verse 5. It's the truth of needed correction. Look at verse 5. He said, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Now let's be honest, folks. Everybody likes to be complimented while few people want to be critiqued and criticized. But Solomon is saying that oftentimes a wise rebuke is much needed correction. So let me put it in, in simple uh, everyday Eastern Oklahoma lingo, folks. Simple terms. There are times in our life we do not need a yes man to tell us what we want to hear. We need a wise man who will tell us the truth and what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. That's verse 5 in a nutshell. Now, tragically, folks, in our day, we have succumbed, and I say we, uh, many have succumbed to the pressure to be politically, socially correct instead of spiritually and biblically correct because they're afraid they're going to hurt somebody's feelings. So many times we'll try to water the truth down, make people feel better, better about themselves. Now let me ask you something. By doing that, as a result, what have we accomplished? Let me tell you real clear. We have accomplished, we have produced a generation of egomaniacs who only want to listen to Dr. Feelgood. You agree with me or not? We've produced a generation of people who say, it's all about me. Their attitude is, here am I. Here's the world. Is that not true? And I'm going to tell you something. I believe the Apostle Paul speaks directly to the day and time which we're living right now. And you know the verse, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, A time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away the ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Nonetheless, Paul goes on in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and, and he says, uh, no matter how tough the trail may be, no matter how dark the night may be, no matter how trying the time may be, he goes on and says the duty of the man of God is to preach the Word of God. He said it's to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Now if I may, can I give you Jim Reed's translation of what Paul is saying there? Paul is making it clear. He's saying whether they like it or not, whether they receive it or not, whether it's popular or not, you preach the truth. Don't give people what they want to hear. Tell them what they need to hear. But amazingly enough, folks, today many churches, they have failed and forgotten their spiritual duty. And here's something else that's sad. Many who profess to be Christians, 
they have foolishly and tragically to their own destruction decided they'd rather not hear the truth. Solomon says there are times in our lives when correction is needed. And when that time comes and that correction is given, Solomon says do not resist it, do not refuse it, do not reject it, but receive it because, look again at verse 5, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Now Solomon speaks not only of needed correction, but of heated correction. I believe you agree with me. There is a tremendous difference, folks, between hearing something and heeding something. There's a great difference and a great divide between knowing what should be done and doing what should be done. And Solomon says that when correction is given that's needed, that correction should be heeded. That truth, we should listen to it, and we should follow that truth. Now I want you to look at verse 6. He describes the flattery of a fool here. And he, uh, he likens it. Well, let's read verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. As the crackling of thorns under a pot. Let me break this verse down. He's talking about a man who laughs at truth, and he said, that man's a fool. His life is vanity. His life is meaningless. Now I want you to look at verse 7. This verse is a little more difficult. And I want you to stay with me on this. It says, verse 7, Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Now speaking literally, and many translations of Scripture have it this way, many commentary writers teach it this way, this verse, and I believe it is, it's talking about taking advantage of others and coercing others. Now I know some translations said it speaks of blackmail or extortion or bribe and things like that. Well, I want you to keep something in mind, folks. And I'm going to share it with you. Look at the word mad that's used in that verse. That word doesn't speak of anger. In the Hebrew language, it is the imperfect root of a word that usually refers to praise. But sometimes that word can be used and it means the opposite of praise as it does here in this verse. So let me explain to you. When you praise somebody, you lift them up. You tell them how great, how glorious they are, right? Well, what's the opposite of that? That is bringing somebody down. Instead of lifting up, you bring them down. You declare them to be a fool. That's the meaning of the verse here. Now, let me say this. I believe, and this is my opinion on it. You know, uh, this may not be Dr. John MacArthur's opinion. It may not be a lot of other guys' opinion. This is my opinion on it, all right? I'm not saying 100% this is exactly what it says. I'm just saying in my heart, I believe this is what's speaking of. Because I don't think Solomon had ADD. I don't know. But why would he shift gears so quick? All right, let me explain to you. Folks, think about this. To take advantage and coerce someone, to take advantage of somebody, you don't have to do that with extortion and blackmail. To coerce somebody, it does not have to be done with force or intimidation uh, or money or material things. To take advantage of somebody, to coerce somebody, it can be done with words. You say, really? Oh, yeah. False, flattering words can take advantage of somebody, can coerce somebody. So I want you to keep this in mind. <laughs> I believe what he's talking about here, it refers to false, foolish flattery. And somebody who listens to false, foolish flattery, folks, they show themselves to be a fool. And a person who listens to false, foolish flattery, not only show themselves to be a fool, but they allow their heart 
to be corrupted. In other words, they allow it to corrupt their understanding, their perception. Say, so where are you going, preacher? Well, let me put it this way. One reason why many people don't like the preaching of the Word of God is many times it does not leave us with the warm fuzzies. In other words, it does not flatter us. Are you following me? While society, they seek to tell us that man is innately good, God's Word teaches unequivocally that man is innately bad. He is a sinner who is dead, defiled, and depraved. And so because of that, there's needed correction. Because it's the truth, folks. And we all need to hear the truth. Solomon says needed correction must be heated correction. We must receive the truth and then respond to the truth. Listen, church, every single time we gather together as a church body and the truth of God's Word is explained, uh, it, it's exegeted, it is expounded on. Now I want you to hear me. I do my best to study, to pray, and to prepare in my heart by the guidance of the Holy Spirit to prepare in my heart what's needed for your heart. But here's the rub. Listen to me. Once the truth is preached and proclaimed and sent out, you can make a choice. You can either refuse it and walk out that door the same way you walked in, or you can receive it and walk out that door different than how you walked in. You can be a hearer of the Word, or you can be a doer of the Word. Choice is yours. And contrary to what you or what some folks might think, you do not need me to tell you trivial matters. You need me to tell you truthful matters. You do not need me to flatter you with flowery words and sappy, sentimental nonsense. You need me to tell you the truth. And let me say this. Here again is the rub, folks. Even though it's what you need, will it be what you heed? Will you take it? Solomon says we need it. And if we heed it, then we're wise. Now the final thing he talks about is a better way to expect continual triumphs. In our life. Let me, let me show it to you. So let's ask a question. Is there a better way to live? Absolutely. There's a better way to live. If you'll apply the better way of God's word, God's will, and God's wisdom to your life, you can expect bigger days, better days, brighter days, and blessed days in the future. Now look, Solomon, he gives us twofold prescription for expecting uh, continual triumphs in our life. First off, he points out the virtue of a patient life. Look at verse 8 said, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. You know, somebody once said this, the biggest room in all the world is the room for improvement. Well, folks, if that is true, then I think all of us have plenty of room for improvement in our life in the area of patience. I mean, we do, especially this generation we have today. need to understand some patience. I mean, we, we want it, but we want it right now, immediately. We hate to wait. We, we like the feeling of being able to hit a button, flip a switch, or touch a screen and go around the globe. Well, Solomon it seems to say that God doesn't always operate that way. Sometimes when it comes to spiritual matters, we must wait. Why must we wait? Look at the verse again. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. In other words, God always saves the best until last. Now, Satan does just the opposite. Satan, the devil, he's going to start with the best and it always ends in the worst. God doesn't. He might start slow, but he ends with best. And I want to say this in case you've forgotten this. Let me remind you, folks. God never promised any of us an easy road on our way to glory. 
Life's confusing. It's complex. At times it can be chaotic. It can be problematic and perplexing to us. But let me say this. If we will learn to wait on the Lord, we'll find out that His way, it's not only the best way, friend. It's the only way. Maybe you're facing a major decision or, or, or a problem in your life today and you don't have an answer and, and you're praying and you're hoping that God's going to drop a lightning bolt out of the sky and give you the answer you're looking for. Or you're praying that God's going to make a hand appear and write the answer on that wall. Let me give you some advice, friend. You keep looking to the Lord, living for the Lord, and leaning upon the Lord. You say, why, preacher? Why can't I have it right now? Because, listen to me, church. Now, pull up real close and listen to your pastor. What I'm about to tell you actually is a profound truth. And for me, that's saying quite a bit. But I want you to listen to me. The easy and the quick way out, no matter what your problem or decision may be, the easy and the quick way out is usually not the best way out. And friend, it's definitely not the only way out. I can give you an example. The prodigal son, he started out with the happiness of plenty, ended up in the hog pen of poverty. But think about Joseph. He started out as a slave and ended up as a sovereign in Egypt. Now, let me explain the difference for these two guys. One great difference is that one waited on the Lord and the other one decided he'd do his own thing. Joseph, no matter what he faced, he waited on the Lord. The prodigal son said, I want it now, right now. I'm going to do my thing my way. And he went out and ended up in the hog pen of life. C.S. Lewis speaks volumes about this. He says, the safest road to hell is the gradual road, the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. You know, the world says, hurry up. God says, whoa, whoa, slow down. The world says, if it feels good, do it. If it, if it feels right to you, it must be right. Go ahead and do it. God says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Wait on the Lord. Finally, I want you to see not only the virtue of a patient life, but Solomon talks about the value of a productive life. Look at verses 9 and 10. Now, I know many people, let me say this, they live in the halls of yesteryear. You know what I'm talking about? All they live for is how it used to be, and all they can look for is back at the good old days. And Solomon seems to say that the patient life and the productive life, they keep moving ahead because they realize the best is yet to come. Look at verse 9 and 10. It says, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Now, that, ver that, right, that statement is pretty self-explanatory. Don't fly off the handle. Don't get mad so quick. James puts it like this in James chapter 1, I think verse 19. He says, uh, uh, Be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. But I want to key in on that second part. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Now listen to this. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Let me explain. Psalm is describing a guy who says, whatever happened to the good old days? He's talking about somebody so wrapped up in the past, they can't move ahead. They're not any good in the present, and they can't move ahead in the future. So instead of living a productive life, they're living an unproductive life because they can't move ahead. They cannot get past the past. That makes sense to you? Now I know this might hit home with a lot of folks. Now, I want you to understand something. I want to make it real clear. There's absolutely nothing wrong whatsoever with remembering and reflecting upon the good days and the good memories from the past. 
But whenever we look to the past and stay and dwell in the past and allow the past to hinder us for the present and the, and the future, then we become unproductive and we become unfruitful for the Lord. Let me illustrate it this way. You remember the experience uh, of the children of Israel, the Israelites had in the wilderness? Every time they faced hardship in the wilderness, what they do? They mumble, grumble, gripe, and complain and say, why didn't we stay in Egypt? Things were better there. Things were better back then. Well, folks, let me share something with you. In the book of Ezra, chapter 3 is where it talks about this. But the book of Ezra is about the exiles returning to Jerusalem. Okay? Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, had, taken them, had destroyed the temple and been taken captive by the Babylonians. But the, the, the Persians had, had uh, overthrown the Babylonians and King Cyrus sent them back. Said, you can go back and restore your homeland. So in Ezra 3, it records that they're rebuilding the temple. They're building the second Solomon's temple. The first one's destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what it says. We're told in Ezra 3 that when the foundation was laid for the second temple, it says the old men wept for the days of old. They wept for the good old days. They couldn't see the great work that God was about to do in the present here and now that was right before them because all they could do was dwell in the past. Someone said this, and I agree with them. They said the good old days were not all that good to begin with. And they said the good old days are a combination of a bad memory and a good imagination. Listen to me, folks. Think about this. Today is tomorrow's good old days. I mean, is that not true? And we can't do anything to undo and redo yesterday, but praise God, we can live in what God has given us today, and we can look forward to what God's going to do tomorrow. I'm going to close with a story. I think I may have shared this before. I love this story. Every time I, I think about it or, or, or read it, it blesses my heart. There was a missionary and his wife, a missionary by the name of Henry Morrison. He and his wife were returning home to the United States. They had spent 40 years in foreign mission field. They were coming back home. Well, on board the ship that they were on, coming back home, President Theodore Roosevelt was on that ship. He was returning from a hunting trip. Well, when they pulled into New York Harbor, there was great fanfare, thousands of people there to see the president. Mr. Morrison was a little bit depressed. He said, the, the president comes back from a hunting trip after a few days. We have given 40 years of our lives to a far greater cause in the service of the Lord. We come home, and honey, there's not a single person here to meet us. His wife, who was a very godly woman, she said, Henry, it's all right. He said, what do you mean it's all right? She said, honey, just remember, we ain't home yet. We ain't home yet. Now, friend, your life, I don't know what's going on in your life. It may be filled with, with some troubles, maybe some perplexing truth. But what Solomon seems to say to us is, if you're a child of God, you can expect continual triumphs by remembering the simple fact, Christian, you just ain't home yet. And thanks be to God, and I've said this so many times at funerals of Christians, thanks be to God, the best is yet to come. Amen? Amen. Now, there is a better way, folks, and let me tell it to you. It's living in obedience to the Word of God, submitting yourself to the will of God, and following every day the ways of God. You want a better way to live? I just gave it to you. That is.
Would you bow your heads, please? We're going to have a time of invitation. You're here today. You need to make a decision for the Lord. The first step of obedience to God is to, is to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You need to receive Him as your Savior and Lord. Because if you don't do that, nothing else matters. That's first. If you have done that, you've given your life to Christ. By faith, you've trusted Him as your Savior. Then I want to ask you, are you surrendered and obedient and submitting yourself to His will? For your life. You say, well, I, I, no, I don't think I've done that. Well, you need to start doing that today, friend. <laughs> you want a better way to live? That's the way it happens. I'm not saying an easier way. I'm saying a better way. But here's the thing about it. There can't nobody make that decision but you. I can't make it for you. So I, I don't know what you're dealing with, but what God's calling you to do, you need to make that decision today. Father, thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for uh, the fact that you continually call to us. You continually convict us and show your love to us. And I pray for those here today that need to make a decision to either follow Christ or a decision to, to recommit their life to you and to become obedient to your will in their life, that they would make that decision. They would realize if, if they want the best way to live, that's it. Father, I pray they have the courage to make this decision this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand, please? Softly and dear.